in these Sunday talks, our goal is to present ideas of truth, new thought, metaphysics, call it what you will. And we presume that most of you have some preparation for what we deal with so that it's not all foreign. It's always possible that somebody may be with us for the first time and is not well aware of what we call truth, a new thought. You may find us getting into things that seem a little bit heavy. If so, the goal is take what you can experience, what you can make sense out of in your consciousness. Take it, use it, put it to work. I'm sure you'll find the readiness for additional realizations. My theme today is taken from the 22nd chapter of Revelation, the 13th verse. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It just could be that this statement, out of the vision of John, as revealed in the book of Revelation, contains a secret key to life. Remember the song, Ah, Sweet Mystery of Life, At Last I Found You? When I use the word secret key, I'm not inferring hidden secrets of the universe that are privy only to the initiated. It is not some mystical formula that solves all the problems of life. It's a secret in the same sense as the 91st Psalm talks about, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Secret place perhaps is a sacred place. It's a place that you keep separate and apart from the experience of life. It's always there. You can always enter in and close the door. As you said, Jesus says, when you pray, enter in, close the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. The intellect persists in answering who, what, where, and how questions. But such an approach can be very misleading. The mystery of life is not reduced to or reducible to a system. If it were possible to contain life in a system, it would no longer be life, but death. Because life doesn't stand still. Life is ever-changing, becoming, yet eternal in its abiding reality. So the desire to see life defined and captured in a theological or philosophical system, stretched out before us like a butterfly in a glass case, of course, it's destined ever to be disappointed. Most of us have been conditioned to religions that have been institutions instead of perceptions. Something you join rather than a transcendence you experience. A series of cliches that you memorize, perhaps a catechism, rather than a consciousness you project. If I were to ask you, do you believe in God? Most of you would probably answer yes, without even wondering what I have in mind. We all have a kind of a fear of being out of step. We go along with it. Yes, I believe in God, without ever questioning what we mean by God. If you really believe in God, you have a sense of the wholeness of life in the universe, which gives rise to a believing attitude. It's not so much what you believe in, it's what you believe from. 
an attitude, a consciousness, a state of mind? Do you believe in people? Do you believe in life as a meaningful experience? If not, then your God is little more than what Santayana calls a floating literary symbol. And your I believe in God, nothing but an empty cliché. You might write an essay on God. It would be helpful if all of us would do this. This is an exercise. You probably would find yourself using a fine array of metaphysical definitions that you have absorbed in your truth studies. You say God is love, God is divine mind, God is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. You'd have a lot of pat answers and formulas. You assume this is what you're supposed expected to put on your essay. But if you can so explicitly define what you call God, then as the ancients tell us, perhaps you really don't know it, understand it. One of the problems of trying to understand what Aldous Huxley calls the eternal ground in the three-dimensional frame of reference is that the mind almost instantly turns to the big man of the skies. We find ourselves visualizing the Michelangelo-like God which appears on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. This image has been implanted in the consciousness of almost all of us, as if by osmosis. We hear this expressed and see this vision projected in the literature of religions the world over. So in the mind of most of us, there's this fixed vision of God somewhere, someone. So in our essay on God, we may tend to talk of a person out there. We may talk of going to God, of God coming to us. You may feel you even have a very transcendent awareness of God. You may talk about God in you, God guiding you, God surrounding you, God protecting you. But it's still God and you. And your prayer may still be a kind of negotiating with God. And healing may be something that you assume God does for you. But you see, if God can do things for you, then he can be too busy doing things elsewhere. If he can heal you, then he can bring or at least acquiesce in sickness. If he's one with whom you negotiate, he could conceivably say no. This may be startling. But it's important to get the larger thought of God. It's at the root of our whole experience in the process that we call truth. Meister Eckert, medieval monk, mystic, who is probably such a sweet little man, talking so such profound language that few people could understand him, but they accepted his love. Otherwise, he would surely have been burned to the stake in his day. Or he said, this is several hundred years ago, if God is all existence, it is impossible that anything should exist apart from him, for this thing would be outside being. All things, therefore, in their substance are themselves God. Whatever else they possess in time and space 
is only an appearance. So the vital key is not God and me, but God expressing as me. Jesus reflected this awareness of the one when he said, one is your father and one is your teacher. In other words, the whole universe at the point of view is your source. Now his use of the word father has erroneously given rise to the image of a heavenly parent. It's more likely that his use of father was metaphorical. We use the term mother nature, father time, and so forth. Father being the spiritual process in him that was close and tender and supportive and constant, like the force of gravity. So his statement, I and the Father are one, is a powerful truth that has been obscured because people thought that his relationship with God was unique with him. He was God's only begotten son. And those are words that ring constantly through the Christian world, especially among the more fundamentalist inclined. We often see the letters, hear the words, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth on him shall not die, but shall have everlasting life. That would seem to justify the whole fundamentalist evangelical approach to Jesus, that we believe on Jesus or we die. Again, turning to Meister Eckert, his sweet little medieval mystic, parish priest. He said, God never begot but one son, but the eternal is forever begetting the only begotten. God never begot but one son, but the eternal is forever begetting the only begotten. The only begotten is spiritual man, the divine idea, the Christ principle. The only begotten Son is that which is begotten only of God. Humanly, I'm sure we'll realize that we're begotten by many influences. We're begotten by heredity through our parents. We may be begotten to a certain extent by something that feeds back from our previous lives, if you are interested in reincarnation. Maybe begotten by your environment, by your relationships with people, by the Madison Avenue hype that drives you to do certain things, even if you don't otherwise want to. You're begotten of many things. But John 3.16 says, that after all, you're a child of God, and you always have within you the potential of the Christ. So whosoever believeth on him, referring to this divine pattern, divine plan within you, this Christ self of you, shall not die, but shall have everlasting life. This turns the whole quotation around. You always have within you the potential of the Christ. As I say often, within you is the unborn possibility of limitless life, and yours is the joyous privilege giving expression to it. Now, this is not a proof of Jesus' divinity. It's John 3.16. It's a restatement of his discovery of the divinity of man, which he proved. He discovered that within him that was begotten only of God, the Christ of him. 
and he proved this divinity. He demonstrated it, he fulfilled it. He believed it so completely that even death in the tomb could not hold him. We've said that I am Alpha and Omega is the key to the mystery of life. Everything has its origin in an idea or God, thought. Whether it is a person, a possession, or the universe. And it has its completion in the manifestation of that thought form. Let me say that again. Everything has its origin in an idea or God thought. It has its completion in the manifestation of that thought form. Now, there will be many intermediate steps. This is where we tend to either lose interest or lose the focus. There may be much laborious effort between the God thought and the expression of that thought. But in Alpha and Omega, the thing already exists in the thought. The finished work already exists in the plan. This is the principle that we need to become conscious of. It's so very important. The building already exists in the architect's plan. The mature adult already exists in the naive child. It means that your healthy body already exists in the allness or divine self of you, even if you're sick. Your success and prosperity already exists within your desire and image of what you're working for. Under the Pythagorean system of mathematics, all numbers proceed from unity and are resolvable back again into unity. All things begin with one. You can duplicate one and have two and 99, or the U.S. deficit that goes into the trillions. You can create complicated formulas and problems, but all of them are resolvable back again into the basic one. It has been said that if we had a full knowledge of the one, the one, the wholeness, the divine activity at the point of us, the Alpha and Omega, which is essential unity, we would know all that exists. We have no further need for mathematics or science. But then every problem has an answer because the problem exists within the one. And like numbers, it's reducible back again into the basic one. This is not to minimize life's problems. We wouldn't do that. Certainly we don't say that the problems are simple and you just have to resolve it back into one. It's not all that easy. We're not minimizing life's problems, but we're trying to maximize the power of the growth principle, to have more faith in the process that works within us. We must never lose sight of the perfection of the thing in the thought, because we do not yet see the perfection of the thought in the thing. We don't want to become impatient with the process. For instance, if faced with a need for healing, the illness is there. And it's not negative to accept it as a condition to be met. To many folks in truth say, I'm not sick. There's no sickness in God. I, I'm, I'm whole, I'm perfect, I'm well. All that he says is true at a certain level of perception. But to make these statements in human consciousness is to create falsehoods within his complicated awareness. The condition is there to be met. It's not outside of God. Rather, it is a frustration within the life of God. Allness remains a reality. There's an allness within the illness. This is the key to healing, certainly. You can be healed because you are whole, because you're created whole. 
Note how when Jesus stood at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, he prayed the prayer of oneness. He didn't give in to appearances and say, I'm sorry, folks, I wish I could have helped, but it's too late. Nor did he plead with God to work a miracle. He simply lifted up his eyes, turned away from the appearance, returned in consciousness to the principle. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He could just as well have said, I am Alpha and Omega, because in principle this is what they both mean. He said, loose him and let him go. Then he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. How could he have been so sure of himself? Simply because it is principle. It simply never occurred to Jesus to trace the death of Lazarus to God, even to think of him as dead. Of course, we must realize that Jesus was dealing with the law from the highest possible level of consciousness. As I often say, some of us are just a little bit below that level. Beyond the world of change and challenge, there's a realm where God is good and God is all, thus all is good. That's a little play on words that we use often in truth. God is good, God is all, so all is good. It's a statement of absolute truth. But on the level at which it is normally stated, it is not true. And we kid ourselves if we try to make ourselves believe it. It is true that there is an oak tree in the acorn. And in an absolute sense, an acorn is a tree. But an acorn has a lot of growing to do to become and manifest what it is in potential. This is a little parenthetic realization that so often we overlook. Every person is a child of God, totally good in potential. But to say a criminal is good, or that crime is good, would not be true. Adding two plus two and getting an answer of five is not good. The principle is good. The inherent right answer of four is good. Because we don't understand this, quite often the naive student of truth who deal with the wrongs of life by declaring Pollyanna-like, it's all good, it's all good. Looks out into the world around him, it's all good. Reads the news in the paper, the horrible things happening, it's all good, it's all good. He thinks he's being metaphysically positive. He's being positively negative. But the very important difficulty is that the person makes little or no effort to correct things. It's all good, so I have nothing to correct. It's, it's all good. He becomes an escapist, hiding his head in the sand. If you have inadvertently combined two elements to create a poisonous substance, to affirm divine order is established is not enough. Divine order is always established, and there's a realm in which divine order is, is the ever-present reality of life. But divine order is not always established in human experience, as our news would tend to indicate each day. You're a part of that divine order, the orderly act of eliminating the poison. And it's not being negative to point to the poison and insist that it must be corrected, and to set to work correcting it. Actually, it is highly negative to talk and act as if a problem does not exist, when consciously you know very well that it does. The ideal is to face every need in the consciousness, I am Alpha and Omega, I am the divine possibility that is ever present, I am the process by which the ideal can be made real, 
as I become a receptive channel for its expression. To know that the allness of God is just as much a reality in the sick body as in the healthy one. The allness of God is just as much a reality in the person who is out of work and destitute and the person who is prosperous. Gravity is at work just as surely when a bird is soaring upward as when a stone is falling earthward. What is sometimes called the finished kingdom, like the divinity of man, is the principle and pattern of wholeness which is ever-present, even in time of war, injustice, or crime. As we read in the Old Testament, God created man whole, but he has created endless subtleties of his own. God created man whole, but he has created endless subtleties of his own. God created the earth, but people have created the world. The world is the newspaper, the stock market, the TV and noise and bustle of the streets. It has its ups and downs. It's ever-changing. But the world is not spirit. It is not ultimate reality. Everything in the world, like this lectern, is changeable and changing. Everything except that which is the causal idea in divine mind, the changeless reality. The lectern is the thing which has unfolded from the idea. The idea remains ever within the thing, and the thing was, is, and ever shall be in the idea. So it is with people. Behind the person, no matter what he appears to be, no matter what he's done, no matter how he sees himself or we see him, behind the person is the divine idea of the perfect person. That idea remains in the person, experiences a discontent and hunger, and drive for fulfillment. It's what I call the Promethean voice. It keeps us working on our own statue, as the Greeks say. It's important that we get this straight. Either a thing is a principle or it's not. The principle of the divinity of man, the principle of the divine process that's ever present, the principle that there's a perfect idea in back of even an imperfect expression, that there's a potential Christ within every one. So often we say, well, that's fine, but uh, not this one, not that one. Oh, no, not that one. Taking exceptions to it. But the idea remains in the person. He experiences it, though he doesn't always listen to it, as an urge for growth, a discontent, a hunger. Quite often this discontent and hunger drives him into other things, to alcohol or to overindulgence or various other self-indulgences in life. Man is an unfinished creature. Alone of all living creatures, man seems to have been assigned the task of completing himself. The tiger, the rabbit, the eagle, or the earthworm are relatively finished products at birth. No further development opens to them other than just physical growth. The genes of the ant provide him at birth with all his faculties fully developed. There will be no further growth of his powers. You and I have the freedom to evolve and perfect ourselves. And I might add the responsibility to evolve and perfect ourselves. Unlike the ant, we're born helpless, with the potential steadily to extend our faculties, to augment our grasp and reach. We have the built-in quality of growth, of life enchantment, 
and reaching for the stars. Unless we realize this, we tend to think that this is the way I was created, this is life, I do all I can do, I work as hard as they pay me for, I get back home and there's nothing much to do but curl up in front of TV, watch a good mystery, doze off to sleep, tomorrow going to work again. It's surprising how many folks, as one poet says, die with all their music in them. We never realize that the important purpose of life, not just to exist, not just to get by, not just to adjust to things, but to grow. Life is a constant process of growth. It's never too late to begin taking hold of some of the limiting attitudes and factors in our consciousness to give expression to something more of the true self. As Revelation says, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know when he shall appear, parenthetically, to become clear to us, becomes clear and conscious, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, not Jesus, but like this divine pattern, which is God's pattern of us, the Christ of us, that we shall see him as he is. Let's say that again. Now are we sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See how orthodoxy has insisted on the personalization of God and of Jesus in place of the Christ. The person always feels that this is talking about Jesus. When Jesus will appear, we'll be like him. It's not talking about Jesus at all. It's talking about the Christ principle within man, within life. And that appears to us in consciousness. Paul speaks of Christ being formed in us and of being renewed in knowledge. It's a new knowledge, the recognition of principles about which most of our lives have been ignorant, the principle of divine sonship. This idea of Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the whole always present in the partial experience, interestingly has been sensed by biologists who can understand the miracle of growth in plants. Edmund Sinnott, eminent biologist at Yale University, talks of this in his book, Biology of the Spirit. He says, the tree in your yard is an organized, self-regulated system with a specific type of structure implanted in it. Like Tennyson's flower on a crannied wall, if we knew what makes the tree grow from a seed and stay precisely a pine tree or elm tree through all its vicissitudes of history, we would come close to knowing what life really is. And so it reminds us how the green thumb plant grower would take a shoot, for instance, from a geranium, planted in water, then eventually in soil, and this little slip will grow roots on one end, and soon a well-rooted plant is established. Somehow in this little budding tip there is, in miniature, the making of the whole. He says that as every soldier in Napoleon's army carried the potential baton of a field marshal in his knapsack, so each branch of the geranium carries the possibility of a whole plant in itself. Somehow there must be present in the plant's living stuff, imminent in all its parts, something that represents the natural configuration of the whole, as a norm to which its growth conforms, a goal toward which development is invariably directed. This insistent fact confronts us everywhere in biology. What he says is quite profound. In every cell of the plant, whatever it is, 
There's within it the pattern of the whole and the potential of the whole. In potential, every cell could reproduce itself and reproduce the whole plant. It's hard for us to grasp, perhaps. This is also the exciting development that is slowly occurring in medical research, you know, the process of cell growth. It is now being increasingly accepted that every cell in the body contains the natural configuration of the whole, with the potential to reproduce the whole body. Perhaps that gives rise to such things as cloning, I don't know, but, but there's a more imminent potential to grow new limbs for the amputee. And surprisingly, the facility to see without eyes, to see with the cells of the forehead and with fingers. This seems beyond comprehension. Certainly, we're a long way from getting the realization of how to do these things, what they can fulfill. It's so important to see the principle involved. No matter what stage the plant may be in between the seed and the tree, the potential whole tree is always in the part. I use the illustration of the dandelion. It starts with a seed, a little sprout comes forth, and it grows a plant, and it opens up into a sunflower-like flower, and it becomes a puffball, and you blow it, and it all blows away. At any stage in that process, the whole is present. What is a dandelion, I ask? Is a dandelion the seed? Is it the shoot? Is it the tall growth? Is it the leaves that come forth? Is it the sunflower-like seed that goes on top of it? Or is it the puffball? Or is it that which flows away in a fly? What is a dandelion? Dandelion is the whole process. It's a symphony of life. It's true about us, you see. Wherever we are, whatever we experience, the whole is always present. That's the key to healing. We, we, we've sort of limited the uh, process of healing. We're talking about maybe God can heal me, so we pray for God to heal us. We're looking out there to something, some power, some presence, some principle, some Michelangelo like God up there will reach down and put his finger on our head. There's only one way to state the healing process. You can be healed because you're whole. You're always whole. In spirit and truth, in the divine idea, in God mind, you're a whole creature in the process of evolving that wholeness. But wherever you are on the stage of growth from the divine idea within you to the manifest experience in your life, you're never farther away from the wholeness awareness except your own belief, your consciousness, your faith. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The idea of the person and the society that people collectively have created is innately a good idea, a God idea. And the perfect manifestation of love and faith and peace is forever an imminent potential. The materialists will say, Homo sapiens is innately a beast. He'll point to crime and corruption and violence. But I say, look to the flowering excellence of a Jesus, or a St. Francis, or Kagawa, or Schweitzer. Or look to your own achievements in your finest moments, 
your occasional acts of spontaneous forgiveness, your great moments of love and patience, your times of complete altruism. Far between as they may seem, what you see in these moments is the real self of you, the whole of you. Quite often we think of a person as two-faced or as being dishonest because he expresses great acts of love and generosity in one moment and the rest of the time he's very selfish and egotistical. It's when the brief moments when the light shines through, it's the breaking through the clouds of human consciousness of the light which is ever in you, which is ever you. Take stock of your actions and activities over a period of a week or a month, if you can remember that long. Isolate those few moments, sometimes all too few, when we were genuine, when we were sincere, honest, loving, interrelating with people easily. Just think of those moments. Think of those as an evidence of the reality of you, the breaking through the clouds of human consciousness, of the light which is ever in you, which is ever you. This is why Jesus says, let your light so shine before men. They will see your good works and glorify your Father who art in heaven. The great miracle of creation is that it is finished in spirit in the beginning, in principle. But that it is completely unfinished in expression. The person you are is perfect, but not yet perfected. You are complete, but growing. As we say again, within you is the unborn possibility of limitless living. And yours is the joyous privilege of progressing and giving birth to it. So rejoice in even the indication of the need to grow, because it means that you're alive. If you insist that there's no need for growth in you, then you may be dead to all intents and purposes. I say, let not the study of this new insight and truth delude you that you can skip easily to the end of the growth process. I'm a spiritual being. So I dye my hair white, put on a robe, a toga or whatever, sandals, carry flowers in my hand. I'm the Christ. There's no way to skip easily to the end of the growth process. We grow and evolve step by step, stage by stage, experience by experience, sometimes even difficulty by difficulty. And don't even think of ends. Look rather for new beginnings. Because the I am of you is the Alpha and Omega, both the beginning and the end. And you can get on with the business of finishing yourself completing yourself, healing yourself, overcoming, unfolding yourself, releasing into the outer and the human experience that which you always created to be in the beginning. Let's be still for just a moment. You have come here this morning, whether you know it or not, because of a desire to grow. You're not here because you needed to be, because someone told you you should be, 
You're not here because of some holy habit of going to church. You're here because you want to. You want to be. You're here because you want to grow. To acknowledge that. The same force within you that directed you here is a force that will guide you and direct you in the ongoingness of your spiritual unfoldment. Just make a new commitment. You keep in tune. Keep in touch with the divine within you. You keep reminding yourself by the divine principle of sonship in which you're created. You have the capacity to be the person you want to be. And commit yourself to the growth necessary. Here a little, there a little, every day, expanding, expressing, dissipating, changing, growing. That your life will become a joyous experience. Not because you've arrived. Perhaps it's not in the capacity of the human consciousness to think of arriving because you're on the way. This is the key to happiness. You so often say, I'll be happy when this happens or when that happens. You really won't. You should be thinking about something else. You'll be happy when you know that you're growing, that you're on the path. And the goal is keep on and keep on keeping on. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So be it.